I don't know if you're the type to uh, just skip past those commercials when you're watching a show or if you pause and actually listen to the messages, but I have always been fascinated by the uh, commercials, those little 30-second clips, one minute uh, sometimes from around the world, and the energy that goes into delivering a message in just such a, a short period of time. Uh, there was a, uh, a Spanish commercial that came out uh, a number of years back, and it told the story of Mexico's long struggle with poverty and oppression. And the commercial uh, begins uh, with, with what looked like hundreds, maybe even a thousand uh, Mexicans with the help of some CGI probably, and they're all chained to this huge boulder and trying to drag it up this mountainside. And uh, the, the, there's a sense of desperation. There's a sense of just the, the pull of it. You can, they'll, they'll do these close-ups on people's faces, and there is, there's fatigue and, there's, and just straining against the weight trying to get up. And just as they seem to be making some progress, it's like they run out of energy, and, and, and the, the boulder pulls them back down farther, and everything seems hopeless. It's at that point in the commercial that one of, the, uh, one of the, the people at the front tears off his chains and stands up straight and, and with a sense of, of uh, confidence, he starts to walk forward and other people start looking at him and, and, and they get excited and, and they tear off their chains and, and soon there's this swell of people moving up the mountain in victory and, and, and a sense of having conquered what held them back walking into freedom. And then the words come across the screen, keep walking, Mexico. And then the logo, Johnny Walker Whiskey. <laughs> now, it's ironic, really. It's ironic that, uh, that I'm not an analyst, but it seems to me that the silent message being given by the commercial is what you really need in your, in your search for freedom what will really lead you out of slavery and into hope and liberation is a drink that has caused, ironically, millions of people around the world to feel the very thing that the commercials speaks of getting freedom from, addiction. Now, that, that could be said of, of the promises of uh, of Johnny Walker, but my, my, our passage this morning isn't talking about alcohol. It, it's talking about, in one sense, the false promises that the world makes to people, and while one hand offering freedom, with the other hand attaching a chain that will cause long-term addiction. What our world will often offer in the name of freedom is short-term escape. And for a short term, it can feel like freedom, but can actually lead us to more deep-seated uh, uh, slavery in our own lives. That's not just the case with alcohol and drugs. Uh, people can become addicted to all kinds of things. People can become addicted to food or to diets. They can be ad addicted to spending money or to saving it. Uh, people can become addicted to achievement or laziness. 
entertainment, pornography, approval, independence. Even some forms of morality and religion. People can, when they interact with them in wrong and unhealthy ways, can actually, in pursuing freedom, end up in greater slavery. In the midst of all of those false promises and opportunities for slavery in the name of freedom, Jesus stood up at a feast and offered true and lasting freedom. Today's passage, the passage that we'll we'll read together this morning, in one sense describes for the path that Jesus took me on in seeking to come to a place of freedom and to enter into a, a path of freedom. My first investigation really into Christianity was to a large extent, a pursuit of freedom. It was, it was looking into to the message of the scripture with the, with the hope that maybe this is where freedom is. Maybe, maybe if this is real, there could bring, it could bring real libera- liberation in my life. And so I want to share with you this morning the, the path that, uh, that God took me on through that, and I want to walk through this this. Uh, passage because I believe it is foundational, I believe it is essential, and I pray that it, God would use it in each of our lives. As we read it, it because is, this is a personal topic and it's an important topic, I want to encourage you to think and ask yourself, am I truly free? And if you would, having answered that question, say, yes, I've, I have tasted a measure of this freedom that I believe this passage is talking about, I would then ask you, are there areas in your life where you still need to grow in freedom? If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me. We are in John chapter 8. Uh, on, in, the, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 841, and I'm going to be reading from verses 31 down to 38. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing I want you to see about the truth that sets you free is that Jesus' truth needs to abide in you in order to free you. Jesus doesn't offer a pill to freedom. He offers a path to freedom. It is not a, a point that, that you can move from slavery to, to freedom and the process is done. It, it is a, a path. It involves a process. And so the truth that Jesus offers needs to first abide in us before it will fully free us. In verse 32, Jesus makes probably the most famous quote in this passage. He says, 
the truth will set you free. And, and that, that, that statement is often quoted without noticing or mentioning the four steps that precede it. Notice in verse 31 that Jesus is addressing people who had believed him. You would think that it would say, to, uh, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. I, I kind of wish that it said that. I, I kind of wish that the process was, you believe in Jesus and you're free. Everything's done. But what instead the scriptures say that by one step of faith, repenting of, of sin and turning to Jesus Christ, a person can become forgiven. They can be accepted. They can enter into eternal life. But freedom doesn't come quite so easily. True faith keeps on walking. True faith keeps on taking steps. And in those steps, there is a growing freedom. That's why in verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide. Uh, Abide is a word that means to stay the course, to keep at it. It means to hang in there. And the implication is that many people would hear the message and continue for a while, but when it got kind of difficult, they jumped ship. Or maybe more commonly what happens, although there are some who will actually abandon faith and walk away, what more often happens is that someone will will come to Jesus and put their faith in him. They'll make some of the first couple steps of that walk with Jesus. But when it becomes a little too personal, a little too difficult, a little too uncomfortable, a little too costly, instead of just completely abandoning things altogether, they park themselves. They, they stop walking. There, there's no longer an abiding in the truth and no longer a, a following and a staying the course. They just go into neutral. And so Jesus addresses that reality. In John 15, 6, Jesus warned, if anyone does not abide in me, same word, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus' path to freedom is a little bit like a round of antibiotics. You've experienced this, right? You, you're not feeling well. And at first you think, I'll just get some extra rest, get my liquids, and it'll go away. And then you realize it's continuing. Your, your, your sickness continues and, if anything, gets worse. And you realize, no, this isn't getting better. So you go to the doctor. The doctor examines you and says, what you really need, if you don't take these antibiotics, you're just, it's, this is just going to keep dragging on. So you take the antibiotics, you feel them, and after a couple days, you're feeling better. But you've got two weeks' worth of medicine. And you're thinking why do I really need to, I'm kind of feeling pretty good. And the temptation at that point is to stop taking the antibiotics. And many people can approach Jesus like that. There is often a a, a crisis that brings people to to Jesus Christ. Often there, there is a problem, there are symptoms And we come to Jesus Christ for help, for healing, for 
the grace that only he can bring. And people will make a couple of steps in the Christian faith seeking to get what Jesus offers. But the path that he offers to freedom is like that round of antibiotics. And the, the doctor is always careful to explain, you've got to take the whole course. You need to stick with it. You need to continue. And unfortunately, when you and I come to Jesus and we're feeling better, the symptoms have gone away, we're not feeling the crisis, we're not feeling the urgency, what we can often do is either step back, move into neutral, or park this thing that felt so urgent, felt so essential, felt so foundational, but now doesn't, doesn't feel that, that important anymore, doesn't feel as central anymore. And so Jesus calls us to abide. Faith begins with one, one step. True faith keeps on walking, keeps on taking more steps. I, I want you to see where this abiding is in because it is not just a vague sense of hanging in there, staying the course. It is an abiding in the word. It's a walking in obedience to that word. In verse 31, the abiding, the keeping at it, the hanging in there is in the word of God. Many people will claim to believe in Jesus. They think very highly of him. They think very fondly of him, but they never abide in the word. They never dwell in the word. They don't listen to what the word says. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He doesn't call disciples those who have just made a couple steps in the Christian faith. He, he doesn't call disciples people who have just gotten out of the gate and said, I'm, I was here, now I'm here. I'm a disciple. No, if, if that person isn't, isn't walking in the Christian faith and growing deeper and more rooted in God's word, directing their life and in living in response to it, he puts a little asterisk beside the name. It's just not clear where the person's loyalties really are. Those who abide in the word, he says, they are truly my disciples. The thing is, many people will abide in parts of his word, right? We, 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 will, we will abide in, in the parts that we like, and the, the temptation is to resist and to avoid those parts that are less comfortable that deal with parts and aspects of our lives that we wouldn't rather deal with. Herbert Agar said, the truth that makes men free is for, most, for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. It, it, it is those very things that make us uncomfortable that are often the, putting their finger on the thing that we most need to grow. And so I need to ask whether there are aspects of God's will for your life that you'd prefer not to hear. I need to ask whether there are parts of his word that you're choosing to avoid and not deal with. Too uncomfortable, too personal. Requires too much of me. Requires change. Those are the very truths that we need to embrace in order to be free. And if we don't allow the truth of the word of God to confront our lives, we're just listening to our own voices. We're, we're just looking for affirmation of what we already believe. Abiding in the word means leaning into the parts that you'd rather avoid. 
Abiding in the Word means continuing to adjust your life to the Bible rather than try to adjust the Bible to your life. Abiding in the Word, it at least has to mean like taking some time to read it, right? We couldn't say that we are truly abiding in the Word if we just heard a few sentences on a, on a Sunday morning. Abiding in the Word implies a rootedness, that there is a sense in which God's Word is a daily part of our lives. That is the path that Jesus gives to us here. It's only then that verse 32 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I can't give you a truth this morning that will set you free. Can't do that. Because freedom is a process. But I can point you to a Savior who will lead you into freedom, who will walk you into freedom if you are willing to follow him in the path that he gives. I can point you to the path that he's using in my life and is used in the lives of countless others to bring growing and increasing freedom. But it's a process, it's not a pill. It's a path, it's not a point. Now when Jesus comes here, he, he, gives, us, he gives us help. He gives us a path. He makes an invitation. And you would think at this point that there would be a great response to that. That there would be many who would clamor to respond to what Jesus was offering. True and lasting freedom. But the chains of slaves keep them in denial. Both Johnny Walker and the other, other uh, false uh, claims and invitations and rivals to Jesus' claim to bring freedom hold on to us. They they have a pull on us. They hold us down and keep us back. The chains of slaves keep them in denial. When Jesus gave that promise of freedom in verse 32, people actually got really, really angry. They were incensed with him. In verse 33, they're, they're annoyed that Jesus is, has suggested that they're enslaved. And you can hear the pride in their response. They say, we're offspring of Abraham. Like, how dare you? How dare you suggest that we are somehow enslaved? Have you not heard what kind of religious pedigree we have? Are you not aware of just how religiously devoted we are? How dare you accuse us of being enslaved? How dare you suggest that we need to be made free? Religion can do that. Religion can inoculate people against the freedom that Jesus offers. Because what can happen is that people can say, God, surely with all of this religious activity that you see from my life, surely that's got to make up for you know, some of these other issues and things that I just am not ready to deal with. We can, we can confuse the religious activity with the path of freedom that Jesus offers. And one can keep us from the other. And if we take Jesus' word seriously in verses 31 and 32, all of that religious activity may in fact not even be a part of the path of freedom that Jesus gives. The German writer Goethe said, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. I think he's, I think he's right. I think that's exactly what's happening here in verse 33. And if that's true, it's likely that many of us, because 
we would be considered more religious than the average person. We're, we're setting aside time on a Sunday morning for the things of God. It's at least likely that some of us are confusing religion for relationship and are clinging to our religious activity while denying the opportunity to step into the freedom that Jesus offers. It's likely that that very thing is taking place here this morning. In verse 34, Jesus warns the people. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Then in verse 37, he tells them that while they are clinging to their religious privileges, they're plotting to kill him. In fact, within six months of Jesus saying this words, saying these words, he will be crucified by some from this very crowd. People clinging to their religious privilege, talking about their religious pedigree. Sin enslaves people. And that's what it does. It leads us deeper and deeper into darkness, deeper and deeper into slavery. The people in the crowd thought that by shutting Jesus down, they could block out his words. They figured without Jesus stirring up the crowds anymore with his talk of repentance, they could get back to business as usual and they would be free. But what started off as a promise of freedom in their minds led to murder. Bringing about the death of the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's what sin does. It enslaves people. It leads people where they don't want to go. It requires of people more than they were willing to give. It's the Johnny Walker commercial, offering us freedom while attaching those chains. Romans 6.16 says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We like to hide our sin pretending like the very worst thing that could happen with sin is that somebody would find out. The Bible never suggests that the worst thing about sin is that someone might find out. The worst, the worst thing about sin is that it enslaves us here on this earth temporally and in the next life eternally. That, that is what we ought to fear of sin. It's enslaving power the bondage that it creates. Reginald III was the 14th century Duke of Gelders in what is modern-day Belgium. And he, in his family, while he held a position of power and privilege, he had a younger brother named Edward who wanted the throne. He wanted his brother's power and staged a successful takeover. When he did, history records that he didn't kill his brother, Instead, he uh, had a, uh, a special room built for him in Newkirk Castle. He even promised him that as soon as he could get out of the room, he would restore him, restore him to his power, to his privileges, and all of the things that had been taken from him. Even though the, the doors and the windows in, in, in this particular room weren't any, any narrower than, than any other, he was unable to get out of this room because of his size. A measure of self-control may have led to his freedom. But what happened, his brother Edward 
tempted him daily with royal delicacies and he continued to eat and history records that he spent the next 10 years in that room. Literally a prisoner to, uh, to his own appetite and unable to be released until his brother Edward was killed in battle and extraordinary measures had to be taken to uh, break him out from this room with no locks no other, no other restraints. And his life for me stands as a warning, not of the danger of overeating, but of the enslaving power of sin within us. It takes us to places that we don't want to go. It holds us. It binds us. It enslaves us. And so I need to ask, if you allowed yourself to see sin as a light thing, Have you somewhere along the line came to the conclusion sin can be tamed? Sin can be be kept at bay? Did you think that if Jesus forgives my sin, I I guess I don't need to really worry about it. If If Jesus forgives me, then sin surely can't enslave me. Maybe I don't need to worry about it so much. Somewhere along the line, did you start believing that? Have you forgotten Jesus' words that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin? The chains of slaves keep them in denial. So he said that Jesus' truth needs to abide in us in order to free us. But it's not so easy because we are held in chains by sin. It, It deceives us. It blinds us. It keeps us from responding. Finally, though, let's consider how the inheritance of heirs secures their freedom. How it's the new identity and resources that God gives us in Christ that gives us the power to abide, that gives us the help to stay on the path and not park, not walk, not not to choose to, to step aside, but to continue to walk in the path to freedom that Jesus offers. The inheritance of heirs secures their freedom. In verse 35, Jesus introduces an important comparison. And then in verse 36, he appears to say that this comparison that he's going to make in verse 35 is crucial to the freedom that he's offering. He compares the position of a slave to a son. And the reason he speaks of a son instead of a daughter wasn't because Jesus liked boys more than he liked girls. The reason he speaks of a son here is because in a first century household, the son was the heir. And the point of comparison here is he wants to talk about the difference between a slave and an heir. Though they live in the same household, their position is completely different. Their resources, their their privilege, their security, their identity. While the son in a first century home was the heir, the slave was just a worker, just someone who got a paycheck. He makes a very specific point of comparison between the slave and the heir in verse 35. Jesus says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. At this point, he may have been thinking of Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, You'll you'll remember the story from Abraham that that Ishmael, the, the slave, was sent from the home. He wasn't a legitimate heir, and so at one point he was cast out. Whereas Isaac, the the true son, remained in the house. 
More simply, though, a slave's position in the home is always uncertain, and uncertain, and that's the point that he wants to make. If you're a slave, you're only as useful, you're only as secure as you are useful. One false move, you no longer bring value, you no longer are seen to be of worth, and you are released to the streets. Well, first century slave owners would and could develop deep bonds with faithful slaves. The slave never had a place of security. There was never certainty about the position. The slave would do things that the master wanted, but the motivation was self-preservation. They were just sticking around, living another day. The slave was driven by what, for some of you, probably not for most of you, but what for some of you is your motivation in relating to your own work or your job today. It's not that you love your employer. It's not that you're deeply committed to the the values and vision of your company. It's that you know that if you are no longer useful to your company, you don't have a job, and the alternative is worse. And and so there is that that sense of not being driven out of out of out of love and devotion to to the company or its goals, but with a view that the alternative is far worse. So you keep on working, you keep on trying to please. I, I know that's how I was in my first job. I was in middle school, grade eight, I think, and uh, a friend of mine had a job delivering flyers for a real estate agent and. He wasn't able to do it anymore and asked if I wanted. I, I got myself a, a, a position where I'm delivering flyers door-to-door for a real estate agent. And the real estate agent was very careful to explain to me that some students, some of the people that he hired, they got the stack of flyers and it's hot and the sun's out and there's stuff to do and they would ditch the flyers and take the money. So he had had some bad experiences, and so he was very clear, clear to point out to me that he did spot checks on homes, and he didn't want people just tossing the flyers and taking his money. So I, was, I made a decision, even, even as a grade 8 student there, I was not going to be that guy. I was not going to do that. But I also wasn't really feeling like a deep calling to real estate flyer deliver either. It's not like I was feeling some deep devotion to this, uh, this uh, agent and, and the, the job. I was happy for the money, but it was warm outside. There were other things to do, and I just really didn't want to spend any more time than I possibly had to. So what I did, my plan was, I was going to deliver exactly two flyers to each home. That way, I, I, could, I, I could say that I had delivered the flyers, but it would take me half the time. And when he did his spot check and he went and checked, he'd say, well, there was two flyers at this home that you delivered. I'd say, they must have stuck together. Uh, I, I, and and I, I certainly didn't mean to do that, and I'll be sure that never happens again. The flyers must have stuck, stuck together. It's very humid out, you know. And, and, uh, and this was my way of avoiding getting caught, looking good, and hopefully getting a paycheck at the end of the day. But not spending more time or energy than I really needed to. That, that was my plan. And that was 
That was, that was my first job. That's my experience. Is, uh, I'm, I, uh, I apologize as your pastor. That, that was my approach to my first job, okay? I don't do this anymore, church, uh, honestly. The problem is many, many people relate to God exactly like that. They hear his commands, and they don't want to end up in that really bad camp of, of total moral degenerate examples, but they don't really feel a deep bond of commitment to the, the vision and values uh, that God gives either. The goal is to look good, not end up in that really bad camp, and hopefully get a paycheck and a reward from God at the end of it. That's how a slave relates to God. A, a slave, even busy doing some religious activity, when that activity is merely to look good, avoid getting caught, and not be considered one of those really extreme, moral, spiritual, degenerate examples. That's the position of a slave. That's what obedience looks like when not getting caught is your goal. That's how slaves relate to their masters. And if you are not driven by a love for God, but just a fear of him, or a fear of not getting caught, or a fear of not looking good, or a fear of people finding out, that is the, the position and the attitude of a slave to their master. Jesus compares the slave with the heir. The heir lives with security. The heir isn't constantly watching over their back, worried that they're going to do something wrong that will somehow expel them from the family. That, that, is, that is not the attitude of an heir. The heir is a member of the family, and so they own the family's vision and values. The heir feels a sense of pride in the home to which they belong. The heir possesses the full resources of, of the family, and so enjoy the, the strength and the encouragement, the help, the hope, the love, the, the, all, all that God would do in their life. An heir may do some of the same, same things that a slave does. Their activity at times may appear similar, but their motivations are different. An heir won't do those things to just avoid getting caught. An heir doesn't do those things to, to look good, to put on a good face, or even to wrangle some kind of paycheck out of God. An heir will act out of love for the family. An heir will serve in gratefulness for all that God has done in their life. That's why Jesus compares slaves with sons in verse 35 and then says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Some of you feel the chains in your relationship with God because you still relate to him as a slave. Your obedience is just about not getting caught, and so sin still has free reign in your life. It, it, it's the same slave attitude. It's the same sinful mind, mindset with a veneer of religion and morality over top of it, but without a transformation that comes from repentance at the level of our heart. Through faith in Jesus Christ, slaves can become heirs. 
people who rate related to God like a demanding supervisor can be transformed into people who come to him as a precious father. Who come to, the, come to him with a conviction that they are now secure children, loved and accepted by him, supported and strengthened by him. That's where true freedom begins. And slaves will never experience the freedom that a child of God will. Slaves will never, slaves can imitate, slaves can pretend, slaves can give a good show, but slaves will never experience the freedom that is only given to an heir, one who is secure, one who knows the Father. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All who receive him, receive Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior. All who put their trust in Jesus as the Son of God, they are welcomed out of slavery into a secure relationship with God as Father and himself as child. This is the first step toward freedom. But once you have taken that step, there is then a process. There is then a continuing in those steps. Learning to live out what it means to be an heir instead of relating to God as a slave. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he was not making a Johnny Walker walk into addiction free kind of freedom. He was talking about True freedom, real, lasting freedom. And so, as we conclude, we ask ourselves a question. Am I truly free? And if I have tasted the freedom that this passage speaks of, am I continuing to walk in that freedom? Are there areas in my life that I'm holding back from the freedom that Jesus would otherwise bring? Because when we look at the response of the crowds, we should be rightly fearing the blindness, the deception that keeps religious people from responding in repentance to the gracious invitation of God. We should fear this. We should fear this for ourselves and it should move us not to live scared, but to live in honest self-examination to ask, have I truly entered into the freedom that Jesus holds out? Slaves can pretend for a while, but they'll always live in bondage. Are you truly free? Do you know that you have taken that step of inviting Jesus into your life through faith and repentance? Do you know for certain that you are not one, like in this passage, one of those who are deceived, truly in, in bondage, but with a veneer of religion? If you are sure, the next step is learning to follow Jesus as an heir instead of a slave. You do that by abiding in God's word. You do that by finishing the course. You do that by continuing to take steps out of gratefulness for all that he's done. You do that by walking as a disciple rather than as a spectator. You do that by leaning in, following when you're tempted to hold back and park. And as you do, it's with a realization that this place at the table, this place in the family is one that you and I had forfeited due to sin. 
when we walked out the door, when we turned our backs on God in sin, we'd forfeited everything that this passage talks about. We'd walked right into the slavery and we'd earned every bondage that we accepted. But Jesus Christ, coming into this world and living that sinless life and dying that perfect death in our place, purchased for us blessing, purchased for us adoption and an opportunity, the privilege of becoming God's children, to becoming heirs of an inheritance that we just stand back and say, how, how could this be right? How could I receive such blessing from a gracious God? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this invitation to incredible freedom. We thank you that you offer us the wonder of forgiveness and acceptance and inheritance and blessing. And we have to stand back and wonder because we know that we don't deserve any of these things. In many respects, we deserve our chains. We deserve the slavery that this passage speaks of. And yet you invite us out of it. Father, I pray that no one in this room would go home blind to their, the condition of their heart. I pray that no one in this room would go home confusing religion with relationship. Hiding behind religious activity and refusing to come for the freedom and the salvation that Jesus freely offers. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help someone this morning become an heir through faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have, help us to walk in the security of the children of God. For we ask in Jesus' name.